0: Okay, we're going to get ready with this uh evening session. We have a lot to cover, so I don't want to dawdle around here because uh, once we get into this, I think you're going to agree with me that uh, this is pretty juicy stuff this is this is the this is the real breakthrough work. Uh, the work that we did in this morning's session paved the way and creates the foundation, but once we get a handle on the healthy parents within the nurturing and the protective parent and the inner child. Once we get a sense of that and start working with that in a journal on a regular basis then we're ready to deal with the really sticky part and that is the critical parent. Okay, the critical parent is the key Dealing with that critical parent is the key to all recovery, as far as I'm concerned, in my experience. And without a piece of work that has to do with the critical parent and how to handle it, uh, recovery never really blossoms. It stays stuck. Because we stay stuck under the thumb of the inner critic, the critical parent. It's what I call the critical parent in inner family work. And the critical parent is part of the human condition. We're born with it. Okay? Those are the, Those are the cards we got dealt when we came in here as human beings, that we were going to get this nurturing and protective part of us, but we were also going to get this critical part. And we learn the critical part just the way we learn the nurturing and the protective, or don't learn it, from our environment. So we come in and we either have nurturing and protective parents who role model that, not only about protecting and nurturing us, but how they protect and nurture their own inner child. So if they aren't protecting and nurturing their own inner child, they can't role model how we should do that for ourselves. So a codependent mother who's always doing things for her kids, or a father, is not role modeling, self-nurturing. Because, can somebody please close that door back there. Because what they're doing is they're giving all their energy away to the kids and um, not keeping any for themselves. And so that creates the resentful, martyred parent. After all I've done for you. This is the mantra of a lot of parents of addicts. After all I've done for you, how could you do this to us? End up in jail, you know, end up with a DUI, whatever. It's so embarrassing. And all we did for you, and it's a whole archetype this martyred, resentful parent who gave too much. And that is the recipe for codependence. Absolutely the recipe. If you want to know my definition of codependence, It's when I am turning my nurturing parent out to everybody else at the expense of my own inner child. It's fine for me to nurture other people in my work as a therapist, as a teacher, as a trainer, as a mother. But if I'm doing it at the expense of my own inner child, and you know my definition of that, those of you who are this morning, my physical well-being, my emotional well-being, my creative well-being, and my spiritual well-being. If I am giving away and not replenishing those stores in those four parts of myself, if I am not caring for my inner child, then what I'm doing is codependent. It's not good for the other people that I'm giving to because the role modeling I'm giving is it's okay to just deplete yourself entirely to burn out other people. And I call that, you know, it's like martyred stuff. It's martyr stuff. And it's very poisonous. I call that poison in the chicken soup, especially when parents do it with their children. They, They claim they're doing all this for their kids, but they're not. They're not empowering their kids. They are not truly nurturing their kids because we nurture by example. More than anything else, Children see what we do, they read our energy, and they feel what we're doing. Because children are living in their right brains all the time. They learn to get left brain when they go to school. But they read through instinct, through feelings, through the body, through their little nervous systems. They pick up all this information that has nothing to do with what we're saying with our mouths. It's the tone of our voice, it's what's on our face, it's our whole energy field. And children pick that up. I worked with hundreds of children. I was one of the pioneers in Head Start in 1965. I went to work for Head Start. And I ran programs in Watts and Compton right after the Watts riots. South Central LA and all over East LA. So I have worked with hundreds of children, observing them. I had the the wonderful opportunity, not as a teacher, but as a supervisor. I could sit back and watch. And I have watched hundreds of children between the ages of three and five years old, and watch them, how they operate, how they function, and how they read energy in people, how they know who to trust and not to trust. And then when they get to school, they unlearn all that good stuff. But they come in with it. We come in with it. Okay? So we have this nurturing and the self-nurturing and self-protective part of us that gets sent outward because our culture and our families say you need to do for other people. Never mind about yourself. Do this for me. Do this for them. Do this for us. So we learn to turn all that protection and nurturing outward at our own expense. And who pays the price? The inner child. Our body, we burn out. I got into this work because I burned out. I, I had had a very successful Head Start career. I was a consultant. I was traveling all over the country doing Head Start training programs. I had a husband and two children. Um, I was just out there all over the place, and I burned out. My marriage burned out, ended up in the divorce. My parents' marriage burned out. My father, the gambler, was was also bipolar, ended up in electric shock treatment in a mental hospital. The bottom got pulled right out from under me. Everything I believed in, everything I thought was solid, disintegrated within a matter of three years was gone. So I realized I had to go inside somewhere. I didn't know where, because I wasn't practiced at that. But I got sick, physically sick, and I went inside. And that was where I discovered this work. I just went to bed, because I couldn't function. I started keeping a journal. I drew and wrote my feelings out. I drew my dreams out. I was having very vivid dreams at night. And they were telling me things, so I started listening. I draw pictures of them, because I have a degree in art, And uh, art was what I did in my sketchbooks. But all of a sudden, I realized I'm writing about this stuff. And I'm drawing these weird drawings that are very surrealistic. I didn't understand them at all. They were very strange. But I thought, you know, there's something in this. I don't know what this is, but I'm going to keep doing this. And I read Anna Nin's diaries. I was reading about Carl Jung's work and the work he did with mandala symbolism. And that really spoke to me. And so I started really taking this seriously. And it was in that sickbed, struggling for my life, that this work was born. So I didn't come to this through academic circles. I didn't read about it. I didn't study about it in school. I was not a psychologist at the time. I was struggling for my life. And I I want to um, introduce you to my associate and my very best friend, Marsha Nelson, who is here tonight with me from Texas. She's the supervisor of our creative journal expressive arts training program. And I'd like her to talk for a moment because I want you to hear her experience um, as a former Californian of how she uh, experienced a, a life and death struggle that brought her into this work. Because we had different pathways in, but it came through facing up to death, actually, or possible a possible vegetative state in her case.
1: Thank you, Lucia. It's really great to be here this evening. I'm now living in South Texas. And it's just a joy to come back here and to see all my wonderful family and friends. And it also brings up a lot of memories of when I lived in Orange County and some of the abuse that I withstood and not knowing any better, and certainly trying to keep a marriage together. And um, working as a teacher and you know, getting all kinds of awards in Orange County. I was Woman of the Year for this county, and this and that. Life on the outside looked glorious, and I was dying on the inside. And the more accolades I got on the outside, when I came home, the more abuse I accepted. And I got to thinking that the abuse was a payoff for doing all those wonderful things. We had to balance this out, you know. The more he would hit me at home, the farther I would go out that direction. Well, at any rate, the marriage finally ended. And interestingly enough, it really ended out on George, uh, on uh, John Wayne's boat. We were out there for a big function. And, and uh, that, at that moment, I decided the marriage was over. He became abusive in public. And now I couldn't hide it anymore. And so as it goes, you know, I own a swimming school in Seal Beach. I'm teaching school. I have two adopted children. I'm this, I'm that. And finally, my body said, we're through. My house burned in Seal Beach. My marriage ended. I was in a new relationship with a wonderful doctor here in the area. And I had a stroke. And why did I have that stroke? Because I had a lot of stuff going on and I had to deal with on the inside. Well, as time went on, what do you think I did? I married my second alcoholic. But this alcoholic looked a lot better because this alcoholic had money and he didn't beat me. So life was good, I thought. But it was the gift of moving up to Lake Arrowhead that it's almost like I went to the mountain to heal. And... um, in therapy three times a week hundred dollars an hour for two and a half years you do the math I wasn't getting any better but I knew I needed to be there and I finally quit therapy and she called me up one day and said if you come back uh, I, come back come back come back well of course you'd ask someone to come back too if they're you're making that kind of money and um, I did come back but this time she asked me to journal but she really didn't give any guidelines how to journal So Lucia came in my life. She was up in the mountains doing a book signing for recovery of a Inner child. And it was God that put us together. Um, I asked her what she wrote, and she told me about it. One thing after another, I went to her workshop. I said to myself, I don't know if I understand all this, but it all sounds right to me. And from that, I went up to Santa Barbara for a week. My husband had gone through Betty Ford. Uh, Things really started turning around. My health improved. Uh, the gift was moving to Texas. We moved away from, I guess you call it, geographics. We moved out of here. But it was better because my my late husband, I call him late, because things were going just so well. And all of a sudden, we were in England and uh, coming home from beautiful two weeks in Ireland. And he succumbed to a heart attack, age 55, in the airport in Yakovic. So when life gives you lemons, you make lemonade. And at that time, Lucci and I had been up in Canada I had been touring with her, I would sold my travel agency that I started down there because I had to prove to myself I was viable and I could work again. And you know, one thing when you don't work for a while, what happens? You get really stale, real stale. And I started thinking maybe because of the stroke I had a lot of damage. It's just that I wasn't using my gray matter and I needed to. So to make a long story short, this work evolved. We have a training program, we've been doing this work now for 10 years. Um, it's just been a fabulous experience for me. I couldn't be happier. And the real icing on this cake is in the internet, I met the man of my dreams, a healthy guy, a guy who loves to golf. He's never left his inner child. He, he teaches golf. He now runs the retreat center. He, he got me all ready to help do this. And I help him at the golf course. And you know, we're a real team. And again, I had to face my journaling of tragedy again because six months after we were married, he had a heart attack. But the good news is he's had a quadruple bypass and we're well on our way to a, a long, healthy life. So what I'm saying to you, you're always going to you're gonna, you know come across a few roadblocks. But you bounce up, up a lot higher and a lot faster when you have tools. And this is what does it. And when I see people in our program using these tools and just recreating a life that they never dreamt they would have. Nor did I ever dream that I would have the life that I have today. And um, I travel worldwide. Lucia hasn't been home since August. (laughs) And I've been in and out because the retreat center where we train our professionals and anyone who wants to come in our training program is luckily, uh, I own that. So I thank you all for being here. I just want to tell you how valuable this work is. And you know the old saying, it works if you work it. So um, thanks for allowing me to share my story. And please enjoy this work. It's very powerful. And it's very healing. Thanks. Thank you.
0: Thank you. Marsha lives what we teach. And so um, I'm always thrilled to have her accompany me to public events. And of course, she's the mainstay of our training program. So I'm, I'm very grateful. So what is this? piece now, I think most of, of everybody who's coming in is probably here, what is this piece I talked about that's got so much juice to it, that's this part of this inner family work? It has to do with this inner critic, because if we don't come to terms with that, then we're always going to be carrying this burden of this nagging voice around in our head. And the problem is, we identify with it we we always say you know I can't do this or I didn't do that right or you know now that's the first step is we have to stop and go wait a minute that voice is a recording in my head so I'm gonna put it in the third person or in the second person is somebody talking to me now do I want it to control my life or not and I discovered this by accident I was in therapy during the period of time that I talked about earlier, where I was getting well with journaling. And I remember the date. It was November 6th, because my birthday's on the 3rd. It's November 6th. I'm writing in my journal. And I am writing, uh, I'm feeling physically better. And I'm writing about wanting to do artwork again and maybe have an exhibit. And as soon as I started writing about that, my inner critic started in. I could hear it in my head. You better go out and get a job. You better get your portfolio. Forget about an art exhibit. You need to make a living. You've been in bed too long. And, blah, 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 and you better do something useful and so on and so forth. <laughs> and I just started, you know, getting tired again just listening to it. And I thought, oh, my God, what is this? You know? Because I could feel myself getting sick again, literally. I mean, it felt like this huge weight on my chest and my heart. And I thought, here I was. I was feeling pretty good, and all of a sudden, this you know, this voice. So what happened then was that I just grabbed the pen, and I um, found myself drawing a picture that looked like the art of a little tiny kid. And I thought, oh my god, I'm going crazy. I'm a professional artist with a degree in art. I've made a living as an artist. And I'm drawing this thing with my non-dominant hand that looks like a four-year-old's drawing. Oh my god, I'm regressing. So the the critic, of course, is coming in. You drew that? That's terrible. (laughs) You can do better than that. And she also spoke. She was saying, don't push me, because the critic in my head was pushing me to get out and get a job. And she, uh, so she just, in real big words, letters. she says, don't push me. Let me happen in my time. And the, um, it, it, she kept talking, why are you so impatient? She's talking to the critic. And the critic says, uh, in very tiny script, very little cramped handwriting, because I'm tired of waiting. It uh, feels like sitting in a rut. You've know, you got to get out of this rut. You've been in bed too long, blah, 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 blah. And so she answers back. I had been doing some paintings at that time. She said, but look at the paintings we've done. They're like nothing we've ever done before. And this goes on and on, this dialogue between these two, this inner child and this critic. And the child ended up with the last word. You know, She just wouldn't put up with it. And she said, I hate you when you do this, when you tell me what I should do and all that stuff, and putting me down. Stop. And then she says, I'm beautiful, and my beauty grows and grows, and my strength grows, and I am always growing up. Okay. Very, very insolent, bratty voice. Lots of power and energy. I had a lot of energy when I was writing that. That fatigue I had felt a few minutes before was gone. Yeah, right hand, left hand. The dialogue, yeah. The critic is always writing with the right hand, or with the dominant hand. I'm right-handed. And um, and she ends up saying, and there's nothing that can stop me. That's it. And so it ended. The critic just shut up all of a sudden. I said, oh, my God. What happened here? Where is it? It's not talking anymore. Wow, that's amazing. Shut it up. And uh, then I put the pen in my dominant hand, and I wrote some insightful writing that told me what was going on. This is like the witness. If you meditate and you learn how to sit back and watch what's going on, this is the observer. And the observer said, sitting in a rut feels like being shut in in the dark in the womb, waiting to be born into the light, waiting until the time comes naturally. Remember what the inner child said? Let me happen in my own time. Waiting. Let it... it, happen naturally not forcing it and I drew a little picture of a fetus not pushing just relaxing and letting life happen and letting me happen naturally and when I wrote that I realized ah, that's what this sickness is all about that's why I've been in bed something is being born I don't know what it is but something new is happening And I had to go to bed in order to experience it. If I had stayed out in the outer world the way I was doing, it would never have happened. I had to be quiet. But you see, my body, my inner child had to go on strike. That's why we have to embrace this inner child. Because if my inner child hadn't gone on strike and said, I'm too sick, I have to go to bed, I never would have discovered any of this work. I wouldn't have written any of these books, and I wouldn't be standing here today. My life's work was born in that deathbed. And it was a deathbed, because I thought I was going to die. Every time I went to the doctors, they'd give me more medication. I'd have more side effects. I'd get sicker and sicker. And I'd come home really depressed and sicker than I was when I went. Because now I'm physically sick, but I'm also emotionally really depressed. I'm feeling helpless, hopeless. It's like, these doctors don't know what they're doing. It's kind of hit or miss. They were giving me samples out of their drawer from the pharmaceutical salesman. I mean, that's how desperate they were. They didn't know what I had. Years later, I found out from somebody who does iridology that I had a collagen disease. Collagen disease. Collagen is the glue that holds everything together in your body. Mine was disintegrating. Interesting metaphor. My life had disintegrated so was my the collagen the connecting tissue in the body yeah yeah so my body was mirroring what was going on in my psyche in my soul and that's how the inner child speaks to us the child speaks from the soul through the body you know we are embodied beings spirit is in body and so if we don't listen to the body we're not listening to our inner child If we don't listen to our emotions, we are not listening to our inner child. You can read all the books about inner child work in the world. You can go to every inner child workshop you want to. But if you are not taking care of your body and your feelings, if you're not accepting all of your emotions all the time, then you are abandoning your inner child. And your inner child will not trust you, because that's the acid test. Is it okay to be angry, or sad, or confused, or depressed? or joyful or peaceful? You know Which emotions do you edit out? Which ones do you think are not OK? Because your critic says so. Oh, don't cry. Men don't do that. Oh, don't get mad. Women are called bitches when they're angry. Don't do that. Yeah. We've got all kinds of editorial voices. It's all coming from the critic. What is that? That's all learned stuff, and it's all in the left brain. Mm-hmm. The left brain is the part that has all the rules and the regulations. And we think those are written in concrete. Well, folks, they're not. Let me tell you, they are all subject to change. They are all subject to change. And so as long as we are under the thumb of that inner critic, we will feel really lousy about ourselves. And we will feel lousy about other people, because when we get tired of the inner critic beating us up, guess what it does? It turns outward. It has its little megaphone that it turns outward and starts criticizing other people. First, it starts in your own head, and it tells you what's wrong with everybody else. And then it actually tells everybody what's wrong with them through your mouth. And so I don't have to tell you what that does to relationships. It's a diagram for disaster in a relationship. And tomorrow, when I do my talk, uh, the final talk, I'm going to talk about the teeter-totter that we get on in relationships. You know, one person's inner critic and the other person's inner child, disastrous. Or one person's uh, needy child with the rescuing parent, disastrous, recipe for codependence. So it all plays out with this critic, this critical parent. And we must be aware of it. See, in all the inner child literature, everybody talks about the magical child and the precious child and the vulnerable child and all that stuff. And that's all well and good, but what about the brat? Nobody talks about the brat. I'm the only one I know who talks about the inner brat. That's no accident. I worked in early childhood education for years, and I raised two children. I know about bratty kids. Kids are brats sometimes. But there's power in brattiness. We don't want it to overpower us, and we don't want to act the inner brat out, because that's what we do when we're not aware of it. We act it out. We have temper tantrums. We tell other people off under the guise of telling them what's good for them. It's really our inner brat having a temper tantrum. And if we've had abuse in our background, physical abuse, as probably many, if not most of you and I have, even though there wasn't alcohol as a problem in my household it was gambling, um, but my mother took it out on me, so I, I was I was the whipping girl. I got all the beatings, physically, because she was frustrated with the addicted husband, my father. So all of that physical abuse is usually accompanied by verbal abuse. So that's where the left brain starts to learn all this stuff about how no good we are. We hear it. And if we don't hear the words, the behavior is telling us that. Because who would beat us up unless they thought there was something wrong with us? I mean, does that make sense? No. So the message, and I was talking about this earlier, the message a child picks up in their nervous system, in their instinctual system, in their body, is there must be something wrong with me if they're treating me like this. If they're calling me those names, and if they're beating me up like this. must be my fault. And they usually tell you it's your fault anyway. So you believe it. Little kid, left brain, takes all that information in, and it creates its little rules and regulations, which include a belief system that I'm no good, and I deserve bad things, and I deserve to be punished. And so that inner critic continues that storyline for the rest of your life. The stuff you learned at your mother or father's knee just continues playing itself over and over. It's like a recording over and over and over and over. Now, the dialogue changes. Instead of uh, you didn't do your homework, you know, it'll, it'll uh, put you down while you didn't finish your taxes. You didn't get that report done at work. You didn't mow the lawn. You know. So the words change a little bit, but the message is the same. And you know you're never going to measure up, and you're really a mess. Basically, it. How I discovered the power of this insight about the power of the critic was when I was writing my first book, *The Creative Journal*. Um, I had changed careers as a result of that illness and what I discovered. I became an art therapist, got a degree in psychology, opened a private practice, started leading workshops. And about a year into teaching workshops, my students kept saying, you know those journal exercises you're giving us in these classes? Would you write some of that down, please? You've been giving us these little handouts, but it's not enough. We want you to write more down. Okay, all right. Why don't you write a book? I said, that would be a boring book, a book of a bunch of journal exercises. Who wants to read that? What's exciting about these classes is the artwork you're doing in your journals and the writing you're doing. That's what's fun about this, isn't it? Yeah. And we share it in here, and you guys really love that, right? I do, too. Yeah. Well, would you contribute your artwork and your journal writing, and you can do it anonymously to keep it confidential? And they said, okay. Yeah, we'll get the stuff photocopied, and we'll give it to you, fine. Okay. All right, so um, I'll write a book. So I knew what I wanted to write. I had been teaching it. Um, I had all these handouts I'd been giving them. I had the basis for a book. But guess what happened? I sat down in those days at the typewriter, and I did uh, schedule a writing schedule two to three days a week in, in and around my teaching schedule and my private practice, two to three days a week devoted entirely to writing. You know, no laundry, no mowing of lawns, no nothing. Just go in there, sit at the typewriter. Well, I spent three weeks of that schedule looking at blank paper in the typewriter. And about week three came along, and I go, hmm, there's nothing on this paper here. What's wrong? And I'm feeling really depressed. I'm <laughs> really, really depressed. And so I realized I had to go do some journaling. So I ran upstairs to my bedroom, got my journal out, which was an eight and a half by eleven journal, and I did two pages. And on the right hand side, because I'm right-handed, I wrote down what the critic was saying. It's a transcription of that tape recording in my head. So it was like taking a flashlight and going, Okay, what do you got to say over there? Instead of music running in the unconscious in the back of my mind let just come out with it. Let's see what you have to say. So here's what the critic was saying. You're no author. You can't write. Look at this stuff you've written. I had written some notes. Look at this stuff you've written. It's, it's a mess, unclear, dry, garbled. You're wasting your time. No publisher's ever going to accept this. So just think about that mantra going on and on in your head. And you're sitting at the typewriter. So what do you think is going to happen? Nothing. Nothing. Zip. So I put the pen in my other hand because I knew I needed to get that brat out. So here's what she had to say. Okay, big letters, non dominant hand. I'm going to do it anyway in spite of you. You see, I am doing it. I haven't let you get me down. You're the one who's wasting your time. Get lost, will you? And look at the difference in the handwriting, the size. And I'm going to tell you, There was a lot of energy when I was writing this. I love the music. It's very reflective of how I felt when I was writing that. I really came back to life. I closed the journal. I went downstairs. I sat down with the typewriter. And within three months, I had this book written exactly as you see it here. All right? Finished. Sent it into a publisher that a friend of mine had published with. They accepted it right away. That was that. Okay. And I've written 12 books since then. I've had a couple of blocks along the way, but I've used this technique every time. And I've just blazed right through it. Okay. So this is absolutely guaranteed to break through blocks. Now I sat down and I asked my inner wisdom voice, who writes with my non-dominant hand also, uh, why do we need this critical parent inside? And here's the answer I got. It said, it's like Cato in the Pink Panther movies. (laughs) Remember the Pink Panther movies? Remember Cato? The martial arts guy that Clouseau hires pays him to surprise him at the most inopportune moments, right? Jump out of closets and refrigerators and alleyways. And my favorite Cato scene is at the end of the first Pink Panther movie, Shot in the Dark. And Clouseau has gotten the beautiful girl. And they're in some Mediterranean country. I don't know where, France or wherever. And they're out in the moonlight. And there's a beautiful fountain. And he's kissing the girl. And all of a sudden, guess what? Cato comes jumping out. And they all end up in the fountain together. Okay? And that's the way it works. The inner critic comes out at the most inopportune moment. The, the moment when you least want a critic around. When you're, a creative child is trying to write a book, or when you're happy and things are going well. That's when the critic really grabs you. And it starts in about, you're going to fail, and blah, 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 So what do we do with it? Well, what I do with it is exactly what I just showed you. You write down with your dominant hand. You can do that right now if you have some paper in your lap. We have some paper floating around the room, you can just put your hand up and we'll get some to you. You just write down in the second person, because you want to disidentify from this critic. Anybody have paper we can pass around? Yeah. You want to disidentify from it. You never want to use the word I. You know, I can't write. No publisher is ever going to publish what I write. You do not want to do that. Because if you say I, You're identifying with it. You think that's who you are. Your critical parent is not who you are. Your critical parent is a recorded voice in your head. It's not who you are. And it should not be making your decisions. You don't want it running things for you. But it runs things for you if you let it take control. So if you distance yourself from it, by putting it down on paper where it says you this, you that. So start writing right now with your dominant hand just anything that your critic says to you about you right now in your life. You know, you're 20 pounds too heavy, or you're too thin, or you're too old, or you're, you know, your chin sags, or you didn't do your taxes, or you're, you know, whatever. You know, your car is a mess. You're going to lose your house, (laughs) you know, whatever all the stuff that your critic says to you in your life right now, just writing it with your dominant hand, in the second person as if it were speaking to you from outside. So you this, you that, you didn't do your taxes, you should have done this, when are you going to get your act together, blah, blah, blah. And this is all with the dominant hand, because the dominant hand accesses the left brain. And the left brain is the side that has the centers, the control language, and rules and regulations. Sequential thought. Some of it is rational. Some of it is pseudo-rational. But that's the left brain. And so your dominant hand is accessing that. And you want to write it just as quickly as you can. It has a lot to say, as you know. 24-7, it never shuts up. Just keeps on, oh, keeping on, and don't forget to breathe when you're writing this, because this can be very constrictive. You know, and you just get tired listening to it. But better to get it out on paper than carry it around in your head. And once you've got a few sentences down there, then what I'd like you to do is read it back to yourself. But read it back with the the pen in your non-dominant hand while you're reading it. And read it back to yourself from the place of your inner child. This is your inner child being told these things. How does it feel emotionally to hear somebody talking to you like this? You could even imagine a stranger standing in front of you saying these things to you. How would it feel to have somebody standing there sending all these messages at you? Just feel that first. And be aware of what your feeling reaction is and where you feel it in your body. And now I'm going to invite you to get in touch with your inner brat. Okay. Bart Simpson, somebody was talking, the other, we were talking earlier. Bart Simpson, the inner brat, Dennis the Menace, whatever you want to call it, however you want to see it. It's a bratty part, it's real mouthy, and it's not going to put up with this. And it's going to sass back. I'm giving you permission to sass back. You're not going to have your allowance taken away. You're not going to be sent to your room without dinner. No punishment here. I am giving you full permission to just sass back to that critic with your non-dominant hand, printing or writing. But it's got to be the hand you don't normally write with. Just let yourself sass back to that voice. And the harder it is for you to do, the more you need to do it you're used to being nice and polite and and you can use four letter words here just whatever words you want to put down there but get sassy get bratty get nasty because there's power in that if you didn't get to be a brat when you were a kid now you get to do it we just don't want to act it out we want to Put it on paper. And don't worry about penmanship or spelling or any of that. And We're not grading these. That handwriting can be horrible. You can misspell words. You can get dyslexic and turn letters around backwards and do all kinds of weird stuff. It doesn't have to stay on any lines on your paper if you've got lines. This can be a sloppy... As awkward and messy as you want. The main thing is to sass back. Really give yourself permission to do that. Uh, this is, this is you're, you're writing it like a script. The critic says, you this, you that, and you're answering back. Shut up. <laughs> you know, whatever, whatever you want to say. But I want you to give yourselves permission to really rebel against that voice. So it's one of our problems as adult children of addicted parents is we didn't really get to blow off steam about all the stuff that was done to us. And we need a safe place to do that. Notice the word safe. Because if we don't find a safe place like a journal, we will find unsafe places to do it. We'll have temper tantrums in public. We'll beat up our kids and pretend that we're disciplining them when it isn't that at all. It's our inner child having a temper tantrum. You know, We'll do all kinds of weird stuff. We'll get uh, road rage. Road rage is a perfect example of people who need journals to do this in <laughs> and stop taking it out on people on the highway. You know strangers that they're screaming and yelling at because they're venting. But that stuff's been in there for years. It's old, old stuff. And it's just been moldering in there. So this is a safe place to let it out. So how would anybody like to share what it's like to answer back to the critic? Yes. Exactly, and that's the truth. That's the truth. Yes? Um, I feel like, like my inner brat is
1: handling it in an unhealthy way. You know, so it's like she's coming back and saying and calling. You know, she's coming back
0: with, like, you know, she's cussing too. Yeah. I mean, and I, it's I, okay. It's all right for her to cuss because she's angry. And when we're angry and we use words, we want to use angry words, but we want to use it appropriately. We don't want to use it at other people outside who we're projecting onto, and we're using them as target for target practice. We want to bring it back home. We want to own the anger, and we want to put it in our own journal. This anger belongs to me. I'm pissed off about all the stuff that happened to me, I'm still mad about it, and I'm gonna put it right here in this journal. Or I'm gonna scribble on some big pieces of newsprint paper. Or I'm gonna get some red terracotta clay and I'm gonna really beat the hell out of it. I'm gonna just pound it and throw it on the table. We do this in our training program and people look 20 pounds lighter after we've done this clay process where they just take these big pieces of clay and they just smash it and yell yell at it and scream and just, You know, thrash that clay and they get all that stuff out of their bodies and then they they start giggling and laughing and they look younger. I mean, Marshall will tell you, they look transformed in one night because they're getting all this old stuff out. I guess I don't feel like she's necessarily who I am either, though. She's not. Oh, oh, good point. She's not who you are. Absolutely not. She's not. Um, Does anybody have the chart that I passed out this morning, the inner family chart? Okay, the inner family chart that I gave you, the real you, the true self, is somebody that is none of these parts. It's not the inner child. It's not the nurturing parent. It's not the protective parent. It's not the critical parent. It is the core self that has all these sub-personalities. You know, the psyche is structured so that we're all multiples. We're all multiples. The only difference between us and people who are in institutions with multiple personality disorder, or what is now called dissociative identity disorder, is that we have enough of an aware ego, or the director self, just enough that's functioning well enough so that we can kind of separate out from all these other parts. People who have the disorder and who are being treated for it do not have a director. There's no director. If, imagine a stage with all these actors running around. And they're all vying for, well, no, I'm in charge. No, I'm in charge. No, the inner child wants to be in charge. No, the critic's in charge. No, this one's in charge. And they're all fighting with each other about who's in charge. No, none of them are in charge. The director needs to be in charge. The director is the core self that has to make the decisions. It has to choose. Okay, I'm going on vacation. Now, do I want to take my laptop and my work with me and blah, blah, blah? So I sit and I talk to my inner child. We're going on vacation. You tell me what you want on this vacation. And she says, leave that GD laptop at home. No work. Okay. Now we're going to talk to one of the other subpersonalities, the art lover. Maybe we're going to Italy. Yes, we want to go to the art museums. Put that on the list, OK? And then we're going to talk to another sub-personality, the part that likes to take walks, the inner child that loves to be out in nature. And what do you want to do? Well, I want to go to this park and that park. OK, fine. Now we have an itinerary for this vacation that makes sense. And they've all said, and leave the laptop and the business files at home. We're not interested. So what do I do? I have a unanimous vote here. Everybody wants a vacation, no work. So what do we do? We make a decision. We carve out time, and we get our protective parent out to say to people who want to continue corresponding while we're on vacation, you know what? I'm not going to be around for a while. I'll see you when I get back. And if they start whining, oh, yeah, but know, Sorry, you know, I, I stay in my protective parent, and I say, sorry, but that's just the way it is. I will not be around for the next whatever. I'll see you when I get back. I don't get hooked by their emotions, because if I did, and I betrayed what all of my inner parts want out of that vacation, what would I do? I'd be codependent. I'd get hooked into her emotions. I would want to rescue her from her disappointment. No, her disappointment is her business. It's her business. If she wants to be disappointed and whine and tell me that I'm not a good friend because I'm not available by email or whatever, that's her problem. It's not mine. But if I'm so worried, if my pleaser is outrunning everything, I'm so worried that somebody's feelings are going to be hurt, oh my god, The, the end of the world will come. You know, too bad. People's feelings get hurt. They get hurt. Now, if I'm not intending to hurt their feelings, it's no problem. Now, if I'm being cruel to people and I intend to hurt them, that's another story. And that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about codependence. I'm talking about not getting hooked into other people's emotional states. They need to deal with their own emotions themselves. Everybody's responsible for what? Their own inner child. Nobody's responsible for my inner child, and I'm not responsible for anybody else's. If I start taking responsibility for other people's inner children, then I am going to sell out on my own. You know, it's like the society women that are out joining all these different clubs and they're doing work for the poor, and their children are being raised by servants at home. I went to school with a lot of kids like that. I was raised in Toluca Lake. I was raised with a lot of movie stars' kids. I'm here to tell you, we didn't live like that because we lived in an apartment. But I went to gigantic homes of very wealthy people, many of whose parents were big celebrities, names that you know, and they were being raised by servants. And their parents were out, you know, entertaining for this one and that one and raising money for this and that charity. And their kids never saw them. Okay, And that is an external version of what I'm talking about with the inner child. When we're out taking care of everybody else's inner children, oh, what do you need? You know, oh, oh, don't be upset. Oh, yeah, I'll do whatever you want. Okay, okay, I'll be the chair of the committee if you really need me, even though I'm exhausted and burnt out. Why am I doing that? Because I'm coming from my pleaser. And I'm coming from my nurturing parent turned outward. I want to protect and take care of everybody else except me. Because why? We get taught that that's selfish, to take care of yourself. And who teaches us that? People for whom it's inconvenient for us to take care of ourselves, bottom line. It's inconvenient for them. So they teach us from an early age that we're supposed to take care of them. And a lot of you are nodding your heads. You come from households where you did that. You were a parentified child, and you were a little grown up very early on, and you, were re- you had to rescue your parents. Somebody had to do it. They didn't know how to rescue themselves. Their lives were a chaotic mess. And so you know, as a child, you wanted to make things work. You know, tr- try, to, try to be there for them. Yes. Oh, sure. I Well, it Yeah. It tells you it, it did that. It was really your protective parent that was doing it. Your protective parent is the part of you that sees and feels danger and listens to the inner child's instincts. And it says, "Okay, we better get out now. Yeah, this isn't safe now. So now we're going to do this. The critic, what the critic does is it tells you, look, I'm going to tell you that you're no good. Because your dad's going to tell you that in about 10 minutes when he gets home. So I'm just warning you. So I'm going to tell you before he gets here so you're ready. That's about character assassination. That's not about protecting us in survival. That's about you just better know that you're going to get dumped on. And so I'm gonna, I'll, I'll dump on you first, and then you'll be ready. And this is, this is for your own good. I'm just preparing you, preparing the way, so that we'll take care of it before he gets here. That's how it works. That's how the critic works. It's very sneaky stuff. So that voice gets embedded in there, and it stays there. Then we leave home, parents are gone, they're dead maybe, and we're still doing it to ourselves. We're still parenting ourselves the way our parents parented us. And it takes a lifetime to get that monkey off your back because it is so, it's ingrained in your nervous system and in your cells of your brain. So this right hand left hand stuff does two major things. It gets you into your right brain where your inner child is really connected. All the right brain centers are connected to the right uh to the inner child. The body, sensory awareness, emotional centers are in the right brain. Spiritual centers, we even know they call it the god part of the brain. That's been proven in laboratories now. The part that has spiritual sensibility is in the right brain. And the part of us that is very creative, breakthrough thinking, solutions to problems, that's all right brain stuff. So when you use your non-dominant hand, you're tapping into the right brain directly, because that was never taught to write. It never got hardwired to the left brain where all the rules and regulations and all the rational thought is and all the language centers are. When you use my method for writing, What you're doing is you're integrating the hemispheres of the brain. You are taking content from the right brain, emotional content, you are pulling it through the corpus callosum, which is a bundle of nerve fibers that connects the hemispheres. You are pulling it through the right brain and you're adding language to it. So now the left brain knows what the right brain's doing, because the left brain has to process it in language, otherwise it doesn't know what you're talking about. You know, it doesn't it doesn't understand unless you put it into language. That's what it speaks. But the right brain does not speak verbal language. It speaks color, shape, sound, music, movement. It speaks the language of the arts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Your non dominant hand. It's kind of, the content How to write, yeah. That part is coming from the left brain, but the content, the actual content of what's being said is coming right out of the right brain. I've done a lot of research with this. I've had people write about the same subject with both hands. Totally different results. Totally different. Completely different. And I've had uh, scientists tell me, Uh, Dr. Valerie Hunt, who used to be at UCLA, when she read my book, Power of Your Other Hand, she says, this is what's happening. It's what I just described to you. She says, the content is coming from the right brain. The words are coming from the left. You're integrating the hemispheres is what you're doing. You're you're actually opening up new neuronal pathways in the brain between the hemispheres. That's what you're doing when you use this work. So the implications for inner child and inner family work are huge, because if you want to do inner child work, You've got to speak the language of the child. It's not left brain logic. That is not what children function from. And if you, any of you read uh, Jill Bolte Taylor's book, My, My uh, Stroke of Insight, or saw her on YouTube, you'll know what I'm talking about. She lost her left brain functions, and she went totally over into her right brain. And what she describes is all in her child stuff. And she actually regressed to being an infant. She was in the hospital, curled up in a fetal ball in bed. She had to go back and recapitulate her entire growth process from infancy all the way through. And she regained her functions. It took her a few years. But she's functioning quite well now, more creatively than she was before. Yeah. It's an incredible book. It's called My Stroke of Insight by Jill Bolte Taylor, T-A-Y-L-O-R. Fabulous book. And if you want to understand how the brain functions, She's a brain scientist. So she explains it. But she experienced it, like myself, she experienced it from the inside. So when I started using my non-dominant hand, I felt my right brain. I could feel it doing things. I could feel it buzzing in there. <laughs> you know, it was like something's going on over here. You know, this is different. I feel it here when I'm writing with this hand. It's called my stroke of insight. Jill Bolte, B-O-L-T-E Taylor, T-A-Y-L-O-R, Harvard-trained brain scientist who happened to have a stroke. Yes. The right brain. The emotions are coming from the right brain. The insights are coming through the right brain. The spiritual sensibility is coming through the right brain. But it's putting words to it that you can put on paper. So that's why you're using both sides of the brain, when you're using the non-dominant hand to write. And when you're drawing with a non-dominant hand, you're absolutely in your right brain. If you really want to do right brain drawing, use your non-dominant hand. Because your right brain is the artist. It's the one that has visual spatial perception capabilities. And so that's what you, when you're drawing a picture of something, I know this because I'm an artist, when you're drawing a picture of something, you want your verbal brain to shut up. And you want to look at what's in front of you, if you're drawing from real life. And you want to look at the shapes, and the contours, and the colors, and the textures. And you want to translate that onto this paper, if you're doing a drawing or painting. If you're doing abstract art, which I've also done, you want to be in the moment, on the paper, with the colors, with the shapes. You don't want your left brain babbling away about what you ate for breakfast totally distracting. You do not want to go there. And you don't want your left brain going, I don't know. This this drawing isn't very good. You don't want your critic in there. Or, you know, this isn't as good as the drawing you did last week. This is a perfect example. See this ginger jar drawing on the top? Okay, One hand drew one ginger jar of the same artist, me, and the other hand drew the other ginger jar. Okay. So let's start with a vote. Who thinks the ginger jar on the left was drawn with the dominant hand? The one on the left. Who thinks that was drawn with the dominant hand? Okay, who thinks the one on the right was drawn with the dominant hand? Okay, you're all wrong. The one on the right was drawn with my non-dominant hand, and it's accurate in terms of its shape and the designs on the ginger jar. I was looking at a real ginger jar. The one on the left was drawn with my dominant hand. It's distorted. It's abstracted. It's not realistic. It doesn't look like the real ginger jar. My intention was to reproduce the ginger jar on paper. I, I wasn't trying to make an abstract drawing. And the one on the right was done with my non-dominant hand. I have done this research with hundreds of people years ago, and I've had them draw their shoe and their purse and all kinds of things, first with one hand, then with the other. And we've laid them all out and voted on them, just like we did right now. And 98% of the time, they missed. Okay? And I would ask them, so why did you think that was done with a dominant hand. Oh well, it's, it's just got character in it, and it looks like a real shoe, and it looks like a shoe that somebody really wore. And the other shoe looked like a shoe in a in a store window, you know. And it was all the the shoe that had more character, that was more realistic, was always the one that was drawn with a non-dominant hand, <laughs> almost by ninety-eight percent. Yes, that's a belief system. It's true that you don't have as much control in terms of what you were taught in school control was with your dominant hand. But it's wired to the part of your brain that sees more clearly what's really in front of it. It sees the truth. It doesn't make up stories about the truth. It doesn't interpret the truth. It just sees that doorway. And it sees the contours the way they are. It doesn't say oh that's a door therefore uh, it's going to be a vertical you know it doesn't have stories about all the doors it's seen it looks at this door right now tonight with the lighting on it the way it is right this minute that's that anybody read um, uh, Tolle's books Eckhart Tolle that's what he's talking about every artist knows what he's talking about staying in the moment Right this moment, if I'm going to photograph that chandelier, what it looks like right now. Not any other chandelier, and not that chandelier at any other moment in time. That's what every photographer knows about, that's what every artist who draws the outer world or draws abstract stuff. When Jackson Pollock was dripping paint, he was totally into the paint dripping on the canvas right now. This color, and that, and this shape, and that. Abstract but it's right in the moment that's what children are doing when they're scribbling when they're making collages in kindergarten they're just like right in the minute they're not telling themselves stories about oh well this isn't any good they just love what they're doing oh look at that red paint oh isn't that neat what if i put that red paint with that green paint ooh that's kind of a muddy brown color that's kind of oh okay you know that's what they're discovering but they're not talking about it they're it's they're in the moment it's very sensory. That's the inner child. When the inner child is at his or her best, the inner child is in the moment, in the present, doing all the things that Eckhart Tolle talks about, everything that Taylor talked about in her book. is present in the moment and is, is vibing things out in a very lively way with instinct, with sensory awareness, with emotion. It's really present. Yes? It, it works exactly the same way. I've worked with, I used to work at uh, Walt Disney Imagineering, the people who design theme parks. I was a management trainer there for 10 years, one day a week. And I worked with a lot of artists. We worked with creative blocks and all that stuff. And they had a very, very high percentage of left handed people there. Very creative people. But when they worked with the left hand, And the right hand, their right hand was the non-dominant hand. And they had the same experience that right handers do. They would get more creative. Well, here's an example. The man who was the art director for Fantasia, the original Fantasia, Herbie Ryman, was a friend of mine at Disney. I worked with him. And when I published my book, Power of Your Other Hand, he said, I am so thrilled that you've published this book. He says, I've been doing non-dominant hand drawing with our Disney animation artists for years in our workshops. And they hate me when I do it. They, they just hate me. They get so upset. He said, but I know that they need to do this to loosen up and to really get into their creativity. He said, I discovered this years ago. And I make them do it, whether they like it or not. And I just pull rank. And I say, I'm Herbie Ryman. And I work for Walt. And you will do this. But they don't like it because of the things you said. Oh, they're, oh I can't draw with that hand. Oh, I, it's going to be awkward. Oh, this is terrible. I'm going to get fired. I'm not going to be able to do anything right. The critic starts in. But he said their drawing was so much better after he had them draw with their non-dominant hand. They loosened up. They lightened up. He'd say things like, that character that you've drawn with your dominant hand is totally stiff. It's like a board. I can't animate that. That character you've created, it's too stiff. I have to have a character that starts out with the potential for movement because we're animating these characters. And then he'd have them draw with their non dominant hand and they'd start creating characters that could move on the screen because they add life to them. So yes, you have a belief system that you can't write with your non dominant hand that you can't draw with it, but you can. The only thing is, it's different. It's not going to write like your dominant hand. It never is. I still, I've been doing this for years. I, my non dominant hand, when I'm, my inner child is writing, is still the writing of a five-year-old, after all these years. My inner wisdom voice, on the other hand, from the very beginning, was always beautiful. Beautiful, long-hand writing. Beautiful. When I dialogue with my higher power, it's fabulous. Because my higher power belongs to me, folks. It's not out there in the sky somewhere. It's part of me. And so when I want to go in for wisdom, I put the pen in my non-dhamma hand. I ask questions. What about this? What about that? I'm confused about this. And I get answers. I get answers just like that. And there's no doubt in my mind. When I hear those answers, they sound like scripture. They're beautiful. They're elegant. They're the truth. It's real simple. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that's your child. Sure. That's your child. That's your playful. In my book Recovery of Your Inner Child, which by the way is the the whole program of inner family work, there's a the the chapters are Meet Your Inner Child, then you go to your nurturing parent and you do the letter we did this morning. Then you go to your protective parent. We did some of that work. And then you go to the critical parent and you answer back. Then you deal with the wounds of childhood and you go back to specific times when you experience trauma and you go back and be with that child today you as an adult are sitting with that child from when you were four or five and somebody beat you up and you sit with that child now and you comfort it you bring that nurturing and protective part of you to that child and you bring that child into today and you heal that. Then, guess what? You get to go into a chapter on the playful child, the creative child, and then the spiritual child. Because that's the healthy child. The playful, creative, and spiritual child. That's a child who's being healed. You can feel playful, you can feel creative and be creative, and you can know your spirituality once you've done this inner family work. If you haven't, then the attempts to be playful end up in addiction you know and I want to talk about that for a minute the key to all addiction is as follows the critic drives you crazy and in order to shut it up you go do your addiction and then when you reap the uh, I don't want to say benefits the negative benefits you reap the consequences of the addictive behavior Then the critic comes in even louder, because now it's got ammunition. And it says, see, I always told you you were useless. And now you've got a DUI to prove it. Oh, and last night when you were at the bar dancing on the tabletops, you made a complete fool of yourself. You think anybody's going to want to see your face there again? No way. And on and on and on. And you fill in the blanks on the addiction whatever the addiction is for you. But addiction is a way to numb the inner child. I was doing a voice dialogue demonstration in my training program recently with a recovering alcoholic. And she has said that I can share the story. And in voice dialogue, I get people up out of the, the core self-chair, the director, and I go, OK, let's talk to all these parts. And uh, I said, let's talk to your alcoholic. So she went and sat next to her core self-chair. And the more I talked to the alcoholic, it turned out she was sitting on top of the inner child. And I've seen this many times before, but you should have seen the lights go on in her eyes when she said, because huh. I said, well, where is your inner child? She said, oh, my God, I'm sitting on top of it. Oh. She said, oh, my God, that's what, that's what I was doing when I was drinking. I was shoving the inner child down. I was shutting her up. And that's exactly what we do with our addictions. We strangle the inner child. I had a client that I was doing voice dialogue with. She was sitting on the floor looking really sad when I asked to talk to her inner child. And I said, you look really sad. She says, yep. I said, well, what, happened, what happens when you feel sad? She says, well, she used to give me cocaine when I felt sad she doesn't do that anymore but that's what she used to do so another example of that's what we do to the inner child we stuff it with lots of work with food, with alcohol with spending, with whatever those are all ways to shut it up but when we are sober when we're having a hangover that's when the critic comes in and we're on a teeter-totter. And you all know that with addiction, it, it, the ante keeps going up. You know, The amount that got you high before doesn't anymore. Now you have to have more of it, more of it, more of it. Because the critic gets louder each time. So you've got to have more of whatever it was to shut the child up. And it's a, uh, well, we all know where all that leads. Yes. Well, listen to what my, listen, remember what I said earlier? I sat down and asked my inner wisdom voice, why do we need this inner critic? And it's, it said to me, it's like Cato in the Pink Panthers, It's in the Pink Panther movies, it's your sparring partner. It strengthens you. And you would have to hire it if you didn't have one. If you want to really get strong, you need it to bounce off of and to get strong. You know, I get people coming to me, they want to write books. And Strangers, practically, on the street will say, oh, yeah, I've been meaning to write a book. I don't know It's it's because I've written 13 and they feel guilty that they haven't even written one. I don't know what it is, but it's just a weird phenomenon. But they're always apologizing to me why they didn't write their book. And it's like, I don't care. I mean, I don't care whether you write a book or not. It's up to you. But... Some of them go, oh, I wrote a book and I sent it out to one publisher and it got rejected. And they never send it out again. And you know my attitude? You know, you're too wussy to publish a book. You've got to fight for a book. The first book got published kind of fast, but some of my other books, it took a long time. I got a lot of rejection letters. You've got to fight for it. you got to really want it. So if it's If you're so wussy that you send it out once and they don't want it, I have a novel I've written. It's been rejected now about six times. So what? My assistant got more upset when I got one of the rejection letters. I didn't because I've done this critic work. I love my novel. I don't care if anybody else likes it or not. If they don't like it, my attitude is your loss. It's a novel that's way ahead of its time, just like my first book. There's still not a book like the Creative Journal on the market. There is not a creative journal book on the market with drawing and writing in a psychological format. And that book came out in 1980, and I wrote it in 1977. I'm a pioneer, so I've had to learn to be patient. So if they don't like it tough, they are missing out, and they're not the right publisher. That's my attitude. But my assistant hasn't done that because she's not an author. So she got a letter, and she didn't want to tell me about it. She's called, I'm out of town, and she's, uh, 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 well, I don't know if I should tell you this. What? What happened? Is there a flood in my house, or what? No, no, you got a letter from you know, so-and-such of a publisher. They didn't want your novel. I said, oh, is that all? Oh, I thought you were going to be really upset. And don't, I've gotten dozens of rejection letters. That's, that's part of the game of writing books. You've got to be prepared for that. If you're a dancer, you're going to be rejected when you go to auditions. I mean, I was raised in Hollywood. I know all about rejection. That's the name of the game. If you haven't got the toughness to survive it, you don't belong there. Get, get out. You know. So it, it does have a purpose. It strengthens us. It's the antagonist in every fairy tale. You would not have drama. You would not have novels. You would not have theater. You would not have movies without an antagonist. If everything was sweetness and light, the story would be totally boring. But if I start out somewhere, I go to the market and I come home, just like planned. There's no story there. But if I go to the market, and there's an explosion on the street on my way, and all kinds of stuff starts happening, now I've got a story. So all story, all drama, involves an antagonist. And we've got to deal with it. That's what sports is about? I mean, what what was, what, what was this last election about? antagonists. It's all about that. And it was interesting when, um, in the debates, when Obama wouldn't, uh, when he would agree with McCain, oh my God, the journalists went crazy. He's not supposed to agree. This is a debate. You're supposed to disagree. What do you mean we agree on this? That doesn't count. You can't do that. That's breaking the rules. Why? Because we want, we want to battle. We want to fight. So speaking of that, I'd like to open the floor a little bit to um, any feedback about the session we had this morning, because it's totally pertinent to what we're talking about. I said some things that ruffled some feathers today. I didn't intend to ruffle any feathers, but I did. So um, that was something that just happened. And people had their own reactions to it. Some people tried to speak for other people. Some people tried to send me notes saying everybody at our table, blah, blah, blah. I throw those away. I don't pay attention to that because that's somebody trying to rescue everybody else. Nobody voted you the delegate of that table, so I don't want to hear about it. You tell me how you feel, I'm all ears. But you start talking about what other people are feeling, I completely tune out because my protective parent goes... "Mm -mm." Smells bad to me. Smells like rescuing. Ugh. No. But direct face-to-face or somebody hand me a note, I'm all ears. But secondhand, and speaking for anybody else, not legitimate. Doesn't count. Yes? Mm-hmm. So let's leave the last part out and just stick with the prickly stuff in your neck. Yeah. Yeah. That was your inner child. That was in your body. And you were having a reaction. Yeah. 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 I can hear that. Right. Yeah. And you're absolutely entitled to that. Absolutely. And I, I admire you sharing that with me. That's the truth. There's nothing to analyze there. It's just your body had a reaction to some things I said. You're having one now? Yeah. Well, let's not analyze it. Just stay in touch with it. Your inner child is reacting in the stomach. It's speaking to you there. Yeah. And believe me, this inner critic stuff is, people get headaches from it. Their back starts bothering them. Their shoulders start bothering them. Because we're not used to uh, paying attention to the critic and dealing with it directly. It's always in the background. Music. You did this, you did that. We feel depressed, we get back aches, we, we get headaches, and we don't know why. It's because the critic is beating us up. And so, this is a good way to save a lot of money on doctor's bills. No, it is. I have whole books written about that where you dialogue with the body parts. We could go on for days with dialogues that are in those books where people dialogue with their headache. One woman whose headache says, uses a word, pressure. And she says, What do you mean? Are you trying to say pressure or pleasure? And her left hand or inner child says, Both. When I feel pleasure, I feel pressure. Mommy said feeling good was not okay. How's that for a headache response? So now we get a whole belief system that's buried in this woman's psyche about when you feel good, that's not okay, And so we've got to put pressure on. So now you've got a headache. Yeah. So the body is fabulous because it tells the truth. Yes. Oh, absolutely. As long as you're not depriving your own inner child, then you're absolutely legitimate in using your nurturing parent to help others. It's what I do in my work all the time. But I don't do it at the expense of my inner child. I don't burn out anymore. By contrast, when I was a Head Start director, this is right after the Watts riots. Our city was like a bombed out, it was like Third World War. I was born and raised in LA, and I didn't recognize my own hometown. Watts was in flames. I remember going to 103rd Street and just thinking I was in war-torn Europe. I was in Montessori training that summer, and I wanted to work in the inner city. Instead of going to work in some Montessori school out in West LA in some privileged suburb where my kids were going to school, I wanted to be where the action was, and I just managed to get a job as a Head Start Director. So I got to do what I wanted to do, but I didn't have these tools yet, and within a year and a half, I was burned out, and a year later, I came down with mononucleosis because I was raising two kids, I was married, I was commuting from North Hollywood to South Central LA every day, and I wiped out. I was burned out. So a year and a half out of that, I was I didn't know how to take care of my inner child. So I went on to a part-time schedule. I was grasping at straws, and I thought, well, if I don't work such long hours, maybe I can make it work. But even then, I was already burning out. So that was the difference. I did wonderful programs for those kids. My staff and I put together some fabulous Montessori programs. I mean, they were incredible. And I feel wonderful, and I will go to my grave Remembering that is one of the great accomplishments of my life. But I burned myself out in the process, and I can't do that anymore. Because I wouldn't be able to do the work I'm doing now if I was coming at it from that same perspective. I would be wiped out, and I wouldn't be able to produce what I've produced. So I owe it to myself and everybody else that I can help to take good care of me. And that's my first priority now. And then I can come from fullness. If I'm nurturing me, then I'm going to know how to nurture other people. Because I, what am I doing, though? I'm teaching them how to nurture themselves. That's a whole different ballgame. That's what I was doing with the Head Start kids. I was teaching them how to take care of themselves. That's what I love about the Montessori method. You teach children how to take care of themselves. They set the table. They wash the tabletops. They clean up the classroom. You don't treat them like babies. You expect them to develop. And you give them the tools. And you give them self-respect. So I took that same Montessori method and brought it into this work. I'm giving people tools to take care of themselves. So it's really Montessori. It's still preschool. <laughs> I'm <laughs> still doing early childhood education. It's just the child in the adult now. Same thing. <laughs> yes. Actually, and I that way. Yeah, I, I would say it was my inner brat that was responding. Because I was hearing somebody telling a lie. I was hearing somebody telling a lie, and my inner brat was just basically saying, shut up, that's a lie, and you know it. And I wasn't going to sit still for it. So the four-letter word in that interaction with that person was coming from my inner breath. It was a direct response from my inner breath rather than taking time to do it in a journal. Well, you get, you, get, you get beyond that as a, as a daily practice. Once you start getting all the old stuff that's stored in there out, you don't need to do this as often. You might only need to do it when you feel totally blocked about a project you want to do or someplace you want to go. And you realize, oh, there must be a block here. It must be my critic stopping me. And that's when you do it. You don't have to do it all the time. This is just a transitory exercise to get all that. It's like lancing a boil. And you let all that junk out. But you don't keep lancing the boil once the junk's out. If you get another little boil, then you're going to lance that one. But you don't do it all the time. This is a way to release that stuff and get rid of it. And then you don't have temper tantrums with other people. You, know, you don't have to uh, act it out. Because you've let it out, but you've let it out in a safe place. So it isn't just journaling. I mean, we do it with clay. We do it with um, paint. We do it with drawing, with uh, a lot of movement. There's a lot of expressive ways. Why? Because again, arts are the language of the inner child. Go to any kindergarten or preschool. You do not have to teach children to express themselves in the arts. They absolutely do not need to be taught. Just hand them some paint brushes or clay or costumes, and they'll go to it. nobody has to teach young children the arts now if you want to learn the arts for a career that's another story but children automatically and I can tell you this for a fact because I've observed hundreds of children in all economic areas and all races and they're all the same they all they love the arts they just they just grab it they just go for it. No, no. It's always going to be there. It's part of the human condition. It's what all of the the drama in the human condition is about. In in religious circles, they call it the devil or Satan or I mean, you can call it whatever you want. The wicked witch in the uh, fairy tales, the giant in the fairy tales. There's always somebody to spar with. I mean, that's the human condition. You know, unless you're an enlightened being and you have absolutely no problems and you're just in bliss all the time, there may be some people like that, but um, I'm not. <laughs> and there were always, you know, on the human level, there are always these lessons. to How do you deal with the enemy? How do you deal with this sparring partner? How do you deal with Cato when he comes jumping out of the alley at night? You know, wh- what do you do about it? That's what strengthens us, you know. I'm worried about kids who don't have enough challenges in their life. They're, they have it a little too easy. They don't have to work. They come from affluent families. Those are the kids I worry about, really worry about. You know, ex- and also the kids in extreme poverty. But the real affluent kids, they've got some real problems. That's it's what's happening now on the Native American tribes, on the reservations. Welcome to the American dream. Yeah, they're making a lot of money at the casinos now, but they got a lot of problems with uh, drugs and kids with a lot of money. I have a Native American friend up in Fresno who's very concerned about it. He's doing Native American flute work with these kids. But a lot of drug and alcohol problems and addictions, because now these kids have money. They're not struggling with poverty anymore. They're struggling with affluence. I was raised in an affluent neighborhood, I know. Those kids were very troubled. The affluence brings with it another whole level of problems, <laughs> yeah, I worry about those kids, yes, <laughs> it said everyone will be amazed yeah. yeah right, right, but your other side knows better, yeah right, right, exactly. Yeah. You know, I'd like to close with something, and we'll be able to continue more tomorrow. But I, I'd like to close with this because it has been um, a very important dialogue for me um, about getting in touch with the higher wisdom through the non-dominant hand. And um, this, we, I, we call it the higher power. Uh, I did a workshop for 95 recovering women alcoholics years ago up north, and it was amazing when they did this dialogue that I'm going to read to you now, they all came to the same conclusion. Oh, the higher power is inside me. It belongs to me. And a lot of those women had not realized that before. They thought it was out there somewhere. So when I was finishing writing this book, The Power of Your Other Hand, I asked my other hand to have the last word. (laughs) And it said, in very legible Handwriting, much more legible than my normal handwriting. It said, Just say that the deepest well of inner knowing and of peace is within everyone. It can be reached in stillness, in quiet, and in solitude. I am here in everyone and everything, and the glory of being human. I would never write that with my dominant hand. The glory of being human is that you can know and experience at one meant with me. For we are one. When you are afraid, lost, and doubting, be still, go inside and find your true self. I will be there where I've always been, waiting. Waiting for you to recognize the truth of who you really are. I will speak through everything that is so human in you, your feelings, your wishes, your body, your relationships. And then my little skeptical left brain starts in with my dominant hand and says how do I know you're real how do I know I didn't make you up with my own imagination and the non-dominant hand says you'll know if you don't recognize me at first eventually you will sometimes when you have lost your way and are far away from your true self you may doubt that i exist that is when you have forgotten who you really are but if you will speak with me as you are now i will respond later on when you read our conversation you will recognize my realness you'll see your own doubting mind and you will feel my essence and know it to be yours you will see the difference between your small, fearful, anxious self and your true, beautiful and peaceful self with a capital S. And since you have written both voices you'll realize that that they both came from you. Then you'll see the highest truth and wisdom resides within you. Everything else is illusion. You will see that you've had it backwards all these years you thought yourself was that little scared confused character that doubts and worries and defends itself that is the figment of imagination that is the thing you made up with your mind i'm the real you i'm your true self reminding you to wake up come home to the bliss of your inner self I don't write like that with my dominant hand. (laughs) Okay, well, I want to thank you for being here tonight. I'm here to answer any um, personal questions and to sign books. And I will be back tomorrow to talk about how this plays itself out in relationships and how we get on the parent-child teeter-totter with other people. And when we get on the teeter-totter, we're cooked. We're done. It's a mess. And how we can get off. Thank you.